Tell me what it is you intend to do with your wild and precious life. The poet Mary Oliver asked that question, as I learned from a monk from Cambridge, Massachusetts. A theme this Lent is growing a rule of life. Our tutors are monks from the Society of St. John the Evangelist in Cambridge. By magic of the internet, they are here at Trinity to help us with our relationships with God, ourselves, our neighbors, and the natural world. And they tell us that a rule of life is a way of answering that poet's challenge. What are we going to do with the life that we have left, however brief or long that may be? One of the brothers explains it like this. A rule of life gives us a chance to think about what we value and the values that we intend to express. Life is both precious and fleeting. We don't know how long we have. We do know that we only have today to live. This is a way not to live regretfully of what we wanted to do or felt we should have done but never got around to it. It is a way of front-loading our priorities. I got a late start on this, but I'm doing it for Lent, and you can too. The videos are brief micro-messages, just a minute or two a day. There's a short workbook to download and print and work with at your leisure. So go to our website, click Lent 2016, and it will take you all the way to Massachusetts, and you can invite the monks into your living room. They will ask you, in the garden of your life, what is thriving and what is not? You can sit back, put that question in your pipe, and smoke it. <laughs> and you can ask yourself, what in my life could use more sun and water? What needs fertilizing and with what? What weeds need pulling and which branches should be pruned? Pruning happens to be the theme this morning in our readings from the Bible. This being Lent, we are given some, some difficult material to work with. In Jesus' parable, a barren fig tree is a candidate for thinning. Axe ready, the gardener takes aim, then he thinks twice, steps back, and decides to fertilize and give it one more year. I take Jesus to mean that his ministry is Israel's last chance, and it didn't work. By the time Luke's gospel was written, Jerusalem had been sacked and the nation of Israel was no more. That is a harsh message. No harsher, however, than Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address when he alluded to the Civil War, then winding down, as a judgment of the Lord upon the United States. Do you remember? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
Can you believe that a president of the United States ever spoke that way? Returning to the Bible, in case the collapse of Israel had left some Christians in that early era feeling smug, St. Paul was there to set them straight. Paul warns them and us that they and we, too, are candidates for pruning. In Romans, he describes the church as a wild olive shoot grafted on the root of Israel, and it would be a foolish branch that mocked its root, the source of its being and nourishment. Paul warns that if God would chop Israel the tree trunk, he would by no means hesitate to prune the Christian branch that he had grafted on. Or God might just walk away and let the garden go to pot. In the Bible, what we call the wrath of God is usually just history stewing in its own juices. That is wrath enough to ruin a person or a nation. Rule of life is a way of asking God not to leave us alone to stew in our own or history's juices. In the wilderness of life's stresses and strains and our own foibles, we clear and cultivate a garden watered by the Holy Spirit. God is here to help us. I always loved a picture that Jeremiah gives us of our souls as trees along a stream bank. I had it printed on my ordination booklet to the priesthood more than 30 years ago, and there was a asked Joe, Chuck, Joe Tucker, a priest, if he would draw a tree. And he spent a week looking for the right tree in Arkansas to draw. And I think I can do this passage from memory. It's the Jerusalem Bible translation. A blessing on the man who trusts in Yahweh, with Yahweh for his hope. He shall be like a tree planted by the riverside that sends its roots out to the stream. When the heat comes, it feels no alarm. Its foliage stays green. It has no worries in the year of drought. It never ceases to bear fruit. Now I'm going to speak of weeds a little bit because Paul does, and because in the gardening of souls their management will always be a problem. Weeds found in the garden of the church of Corinth included, according to Paul, idolatry and sexual immorality. Without fire and brimstone, I'm going to try to shine a little light on those persistent and pervasive problems. Idolatry sounds old, and it is, but it is also new, our human idol-generating impulse being endlessly creative. An idol is a false god. Religion, as one of my teachers put it, is how we position ourselves with respect to that which we hold sacred. By the first commandment, we are warned to reserve that sacred space for God. To us, unfortunately, this leaves what sometimes looks and feels as though it were an empty space, and we may be moved to fill the void with something palpable. In olden days, it might be a stone or a wooden totem. Today, it might be any of a thousand things, including money, of course, and the other southern standby, Southeastern Conference football. When I was growing up, someone said it was Eric Clapton. The same has recently been said of Kanye West, though in this case it was Mr. West himself who said it. 
The Beatles once said something like that, as I recall. Outside of the music business, most of us are not tempted to self-worship. We may be more apt to think too little of ourselves than too much. So among the world's temptations, I think, idolatry is more easily resisted than many. A little prayer can cut an idol down to size, even a big one. Totems, football, and musicians are obviously created. Prayer lifts our thoughts to their creator, and they're gone. I can give you a personal example. I have always been vulnerable to pig worship. I'm speaking here of razorbacks, not barbecue or livestock. I remember an Arkansas-Miami game in Little Rock 30 years ago, two top 10 teams. I was in a pregame tizzy. And then something happened. As the band was playing, the majorettes were twirling in the sunlight, and the captains met midfield to toss the coin. From out of nowhere, my heart was filled with gratitude for the sheer pleasure of the moment, and I thank God. I swear, when we lost 51-7, to I almost didn't mind. (laughs) So, as weeds go, idolatry is not that hard of one to pull. By comparison, Paul's other target, immoral sex, has a root that runs all the way to China. The sex drive is potent for a reason. We would not exist without it. It is not built to go away with prayer. Or if it does, it will soon come back with a bouquet of flowers and its shoes shined. Since Freud, Paul's stern warnings on this subject have fallen more or less on deaf ears in our society. A hundred years ago, virginity was a badge of social honor. I think that changed on January the 1st, 1968. Today, it would be the courageous college student who boasted of it. Thinking about that change reminds me of one of my favorite Richard Milwee stories. Some of you might not have heard it. The venerable Richard Milwee was the great archdeacon of this diocese and my best friend. The stole I'm wearing was his before he died. In the mid-1960s, he was a young, single candidate for the priesthood. Bishop Brown sent him to a Freudian psychologist for his psych evaluation. Shrink went down his list of questions until he came to the one where he asked Richard about his sexual experience. Tell me, he said, about your sexual experience. Richard thought about that for a minute, and then he said, I'm not going to answer that. His professional curiosity on high alert, the shrink arched his brow and asked, Why not? Because, said Richard, I've not had enough of it to satisfy a Freudian psychologist, and I've had too much of it to suit the church. (laughs) I would rather live today than in a Puritan society. I appreciate Nathaniel Hawthorne's insight in the Scarlet Letter, which is that punitive moral codes can be sinful and destructive in their own right. We also find that insight in the Bible, where, for example, Jesus stops a crowd from stoning a woman caught in adultery. 
Hawthorne gave us Hester Prynne, an admirable woman who wasn't broken by her scarlet letter and whose subtle defiance may have earned her a special place in heaven. This is a good lesson for Christians with Puritan inclinations to absorb. But in America today, the Puritans have been routed, and they are not our problem. What I am waiting for is the Hawthorne who can convincingly expose the problem of our post-Puritan and now post-temperate and post-prudent attitudes concerning sex. I'm no Hawthorne, but here are my two cents. After Freud, we are right in affirming that sex is good and beneficial. We are wrong in behaving as though it were not also consequential. When I was 16, Stephen Stills was telling us, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. I did my share of misbehaving, but even at that age, I knew that God wanted more from me than that. If it feels good, do it. Works just fine for other animals, but with us, greater things are possible. Love is the word for it, and it's a high call. According to Thomas Aquinas, I love you when I desire and seek what's good for you, which may or may not be what feels good to me. Love would have the body hold back when the heart is not equally invested, and it holds both heart and body accountable to their commitments. That is a rule to live by. So that's our work for Lent. Imagine your soul as a garden plot. Ask yourself, what do I value in my life? What needs pruning? And what needs planting? This is worth your time because you are far more important than anyone's backyard garden. As the poet said, your life is wild and precious. What do you intend to do with it?